This is Jim Salakrep, and you're listening to Superior Spider Talk. Welcome to the Superior Spider Talk. My name is Dan Gavazdan, and I'm the editor of GrindMyReels.com. And I'm Mark Giannacchio, the editor, founder, proprietor, all these things of the Chasing Amazing blog. I, did you throw in a chiropractor in there? Proprietor. Ah, yes. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for the 12th episode of Superior Spider Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides a somewhat possibly intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors as we hope to look at the Spider-Man comic universe and what a big universe it is and a bit of a bigger picture. And if we're taking a picture of a universe, it's got to be pretty big. Well, there goes the intelligent conversation aspect of our podcast right there, Dan. Right off the bat. Right off the bat, I'm throwing it under the bus. But stick with us, people, because episode 12 is the final special Superior Spire Talk and Friends edition, uh, which is one of the five podcasts we released over the past week with our interviews from the Connecticut Comic-Con event we attended on August 24th. Uh, you should have already have listened to our four other fantastic interviews with J.M. Demetrius, Mark Bagley, the legendary Don DeFalco, and Danny Figueroff. In this episode, we'll share our interview with Jim Salakrup, current editor-in-chief of Paper Cuts, a comic book publisher, and former Spider-Man group editor for Marvel in the late 80s and early 90s, who famously oversaw the reveal of the Hobgoblin's identity in 1987, and then the onset of the, the Todd McFarlane era, uh, Craven's Last Hunt, he edited. Um, can we just keep listing this guy's hits? Because, I mean, this was pretty much like the big boom period for Spider-Man, and this guy oversaw the bulk of it. Yeah, and if you're a fan of Todd McFarlane, he's got some really interesting tidbits here to share with you about about working with him. Yeah, I mean, Jim was really gracious with his time. I mean, he actually joked before we started recording that, that we were going to run out of tape. Um, which actually almost happened because we, we found out about, what, three quarters through the interview that the laptop battery was starting to run low, Dan. Yeah, <laughs> I, I noticed at two minutes left, and I saved the day by plugging it in. Yeah, and, and, and good thing that you did because he had tons of really fantastic anecdotes about his time with Marvel and with Spider-Man. Uh, he was very candid, honest, um, and I think you guys are really going to enjoy this interview. Honestly, I, I would I would, for me, as someone who really loves to get into – how things are done behind the scenes. I, I could probably do another 10 podcasts with Jim. That's, that's how much info he had to share. Um, so uh, let's, let's let Jim take it away. Spider-Man and his amazing friends, Iceman and Firestar. Bye. 
right here. This is Mark Giannacchio here again from Superior Aspire Talk, uh, direct from the floor at Connecticut Comic Con. I'm here with uh, Jim Salakrup, who uh, is a longtime editor for Marvel Comics and on the Spider-Man books. Uh, Jim, thanks so much for joining us. Um, I kind of want to dive right into to the meat here because I, I your, one of your very first issues as editor on Amazing Spider-Man, this was a very odd time for the title, correct? <laughs> it seemed yeah. to be a lot of jumping around and kind of went through a couple of editors. Um, what, what, what was that experience like coming onto the title at the time that you did? This was around Amazing Spider-Man, what, 289, I think? Right. Now, there was a lot of uh, chaos and uh, confusion, and uh, I just wanted to get it past, I wanted to get past that as, as quickly as I could, and uh, so probably didn't handle it in the best possible way, and, uh, and I keep, you know, years after, I still read people saying, no, this guy was Hobgob, no, that guy, <laughs> you know, uh, at the time, I hadn't been really paying that close attention to what was going on in the books, so I, I naively would ask uh, my various uh, predecessors, and little little knowing, I was so naive that well, what a minefield this was, and one guy would say it's this guy, another guy, uh, well, I'm not telling you, it's like, these are fictional characters. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I think uh, Stan Lee said that at a, uh, a recent uh, convention appearance. Uh, you know, one of the he said to the audience, "Let me let you in on a big secret. These are fictitious characters." So, you know, it, it's. Uh, I think Grant Morrison said that each comic. One way of looking at comics is you can look at each individual comic book as its own universe, which I, I know is completely contrary to uh, spider fans who <laughs> want to maintain a airtight uh, continuity from Amazing Fantasy, you know, to today. Uh, I say good luck with that. Uh, and but but yeah, that that's what happened. I just uh, you know Jim Owsley was still there. He told me this is what the plans were. Uh, I tried to wrap it up as best I could, and uh, next thing I knew, he was disavowing stuff, and everyone else was saying, that's not my hobgoblin. Uh, uh, you know, fine. I, I, I don't think uh, I ever touched a hobgoblin again until uh, Inferno, right. where we brought... Uh, I said, well, let's do all the controversial stuff. I think we brought back Gwen Stacy for the first time, and, uh, you know... Well, Green Goblin, Hobgoblin, uh, everything we could, uh, you know, because I, I figured that was a, a good way to deal with it. And, and, and you know, looking back at it now as uh, the editor-in-chief at Paper Cuts, uh, as far as I know from reading the books, most of the stuff that happened in my books didn't happen anyway, so <laughs> it, it, it's all mood. You know, I, he's not married, uh, you know, uh, I, I believe uh, he's Dr. Ock Octopus right now, so so what do I know? <laughs> no, I'm just, and and you know, I mean, just to touch on the hobgoblin again, very briefly. I oh, mean, you're obsessed with this. I am. I, this well, is I've, like the uh, Kennedy assassination it is, uh, it is. theory. It's kind of a little personal thing for me, but. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> <hobgoblin>. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> 
I was um, actually reread the Peter David issue where it was revealed, and I thought it was a well-told story. And did you feel that? I mean, I mean, putting aside who was who and who claimed ownership and and all of the drama behind it. I mean, were you happy with how the story was told by Peter? Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, uh, every time we put out an issue, uh, it was the best we could under those circumstances. One of the things I have to tell new writers and artists all the time is that the job in comics is not necessarily to do the absolute best you can possibly do, because that could be endless. <laughs> it's really to do the best you possibly can within the deadlines uh, and you know it, it's 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 quite a challenge it's not an easy thing to do and uh, there are certain expectations and you know with such a high profile character and a storyline that was so important for so long I certainly was uh, you know not exactly comfortable uh, that you know like this is this is what I had to deal with uh, from from day one uh, I think what I was able to do after that is I was getting a lot of, uh, uh, not pressure per se, but people in the accounting department were saying, hey, there's a whole lot of inventory on Spider-Man piling up. When are you guys ever going to use that? And I saw that as an opportunity to buy myself time. It's like, well, let me use that stuff, put all this as behind me and buy myself some time to figure out what I want to do on the books. So it's unfortunate. I think it was sort of a, you know, I'm glad you like the issue. Yeah. I mean, we tried our best uh, with, uh, you know, with somewhat limited cooperation from right. a lot of people and, uh, you know, did what we, you know, like the, the best we could at the time. I mean, uh, I would ask Roger Stern, I would ask Tom DeFalco, I would ask Jim Mousy. I have lots of respect for all these people, and it's unfortunate uh, that they didn't get to do whatever it is that they wanted to do and do it their way. I would have been a lot happier coming in after that chapter was uh, was finished, and then you know being able to uh, you know start things myself. Not that I didn't create some more problems <laughs> later on for myself, but uh, you know that's not something I look back at and think, uh, oh, I so brilliantly handled that. It was, it was just trying to do the best I could and working with the people there, and uh, you know, and, and I'm always happy to hear people, you know, liked how it came out, but if someone tells me, uh, oh, this is all wrong, I, I don't argue with them. I say, well, you're probably right. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, well, to, to, to fast forward past that, sure. so I'm moving off Hobgoblin, I promise. Yay! Uh, <laughs> but I do want to talk about Todd McFarlane. Sure. Uh, now, you you are credited with hiring McFarlane. Is that is that accurate, or is that... Just, just on Spider-Man. He, Spider he was already... Uh, he was doing Hulk at that point. Right. right. Actually, he had he was working at DC. Uh, I think probably going back to his first professional assignment was probably uh, I think a, a backup story and um, uh, Scorpio Rose or something like that in an Epic publish uh, at Marvel. And then he did a lot of stuff with Roy Thomas at DC. And uh, this was a 
again, sort of this uh, tumultuous time at Marvel where a lot of what was happening because the, uh, you know, certain editors were, you know, very strong in, in, in their policies and their editorial beliefs and what, what would be the best way to handle things, that I think DC saw this as an opportunity to sort of raid some of Marvel's talent or so the Marvel's talent was looking uh, to work somewhere where uh, uh, they, they felt maybe they had more freedom, you know. Uh, and Todd was an interesting case in that I think he saw what was going on and figured, hey, all the Marvel guys are coming to DC. I'm going to try to go to Marvel. Uh, Todd's very much an original thinker. I think he was also frustrated that he sort of worked his way up to getting a rather uh, plum assignment. I think he was going to pencil. Uh, he penciled uh, Batman Year Two. Mm. I mean, I don't think that's you know whoever wants to do two. You know, you don't want to do. But you know, it was still something, and uh, and I and he really did an amazing job on it. And I saw his pencils, and it was absolutely great. But unfortunately for the inking, they gave it to another also awesome great artist, Alfredo Alcala, but. He's from the school where he's assuming whatever artwork they're giving him is, is, is to be treated like layouts. Because he's such a great artist himself, he would just use that as, you know, a, a, a template for him to draw his own very, very different style of artwork over to, Todd's very style. So Todd, a, a young, ambitious guy looking to make his mark in comics, had to be somewhat frustrated to see that all the work he put into that, didn't make it on the printed comic book page. Portfolio in hand, he came up to Marvel Comics. I remember Mark Grunewald, the uh, executive editor at the time, Tom DeFalco's number two guy, I think went to all the editors, hey, we have this artist from D.C., I'd like to meet with you. So I think he met with all the artists at the same time. Excuse me, he met with all the editors at the same time. And, uh, and you wouldn't recognize him, that guy, you know, compared to the public image of Todd McFarlane today. You know, he was he, he, like he was sort of almost mumbling most of the time. His head was down. Seemed very modest, soft-spoken guy. But he but he was talking. So he had some interesting things he had to say. I just was blown away looking at his uh, pencils from that Batman Year Two thing, and thought, Wow, this guy's great. Let's 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 use him. And uh, little did he know at the time that. One of the things that I felt strongly about when I was taking over Spider-Man uh, is I'm very much, uh, in some ways, an old-school kind of guy. But to me, Spider-Man had the red and blue costume. And the black and white costume, which I think is a great costume, always looked like a villain to me. So one of the things I asked, uh, I think Jim Shooter was the editor-in-chief when I took over, 
would it be okay? Because Jim was, as you heard earlier, one of the guys heavily involved with that black and white costume. I don't want to upset my boss if he's, you know, in love with it. I said, uh, can you know, is it all right if I go back to the red and blue? He said, sure. You know, you're the editor. Do what you want. So that was good. And when I met with Todd, one of his conditions, well, if I'm to do Spider-Man, I want to go back to the red and blue costume. <laughs> well, uh, it's a match. <laughs> well, let me let me think about that. Oh, okay, you convinced me, and uh, uh, and so I think he did a bunch of assignments at Marvel. He did he did Hulk. He did I think an issue of GI Joe, and somewhere along the way he was uh, on Spider-Man, and uh, it was great timing. Uh, you know, it was like right before. Oh, was that was that? You know, that long before Spider-Man number 300, which we uh, figured would be the perfect place to uh, bring back the red and blue costume. Um, one of the things, uh, I think around that time, it also was a transition in editor-in-chief. So I think with Shooter, it was okay that number 300 was mainly going back to the red and blue costume. With Tom DeFalco, and I give him all the credit for this, uh, <laughs> You know, he was uh, an interesting uh, boss in that he wasn't afraid to ask for impossible things. Uh, one of the things he asked for for number 300, I said, well, he asked, first he asked, what are you going to do? Oh, go back to the red and blue. Well, that's not enough. You know, I want you to introduce a major new Spider-Man villain. Now, this is the 300th issue, not counting the other spin-off titles. I think every time they introduce a new villain, they're hoping it's going to be a major new villain. But there really weren't that many successes, you know, past, uh, say, the, the Stanley Ditko and Stanley Ramita days. You know, a lot of it was bringing those, you know, main villains back over and over again. And a lot of the other villains would sort of fall by the wayside, uh, you know, rather quickly. So, okay. Uh, what I was thinking of is Michelini had a... Uh, well, I'm getting off the track, but I think you were just asking about McFarlane. No, well, I mean, I, I actually, my, my, my next big question was related to 300 and, and just kind of the the phenomena that it became. I mean, obviously, it, it did sound that there was a big push to, you know, put this issue up on a pedestal, <laughs> but um, it seems to have paid off. I mean, it's... Well, what, what, uh, Michelini had already... And I was fine with it, but even before I started, there was a few issues of Web of Spider-Man or something else where I think he had a female character in the alien costume. And uh, one of the uh, old editor's tricks when you're working for a company like Marvel is uh, when you're working with uh, the talent directly, uh, you want to be the, you know, the good guy. And the, so you often use like the editor chief as the bad guy. <laughs> so I had an inkling that after my conversation with what they wanted for number 300, a major new villain, I don't think Tom was the type of guy that would have, you know, thought a female in a, the alien costume would have been enough of a menace. And confidentially, uh, no one's going to hear this, right? I agreed. I agreed with that. But rather than saying that, I, I 
think I, and, and this is all true. I, I told David, you know, what can we do for 300? We were talking about, oh, we could use that character, you know, introduce that as a major new villain. I pitched it to uh, Tom. He said, well, you know, I, I, everything's good, but can we make it like a guy who's like bigger and stronger and tougher? And I thought, great idea. Fortunately, it was exactly what I was hoping he'd say. So that way I could go back to David and say, well, I, I, I pitched the idea to Tom, and this is what he said. And, and uh, so fortunately, uh, I think to everyone's surprise, and uh, with, with David writing it and Todd drawing it, uh, Venom was like just hugely successful, you know, uh, right from the start. And uh, and I actually wound up fulfilling, you know, what uh, Tom wanted. He wanted a major new villain. I, I think, uh, love him or hate him, uh, Venom certainly was a major new villain. So, but and, and back to Todd, uh, he was someone who uh, was just an absolute. Uh, dream to work with. Um, I wish I could have had, well, I should probably check with NSA if they have every phone call going, who knows how far back. There was a phone conversation I had with him one night where you know, he was very ambitious, I was competitive and, and ambitious, and I had a plan of, like, I really want Spider-Man to be Marvel's top seller, you know. At this point, this was like crazy talk. Everyone was thinking, well, X-Men's been the top for years and years and years. But I worked on X-Men with Roger Stern way back when, when it was first crawling up the charts, and I felt so many of the you know, pretty obvious things helped make things successful. In the early Marvel Age of Comics in the 60s, a big part of it was having the continuity of the same creative teams. If you mention a certain title, you often think, of, well, that's by Stanley and Steve Ditko, that's Stanley and Jack Kirby, etc. Uh, X-Men, uh, I think, early on sort of replicated that. It was always Chris Claremont, and first Dave Cockerman, then John Byrne. And I think the advantage of that is in a sea of titles where the creators change all the time, the writer becomes the voice of those characters, so it makes the characters inherently more consistent and believable. Uh, and having the same artists, is they, they look the same, and it just all comes together. It's like, it's not like they're all starting over again, you know, on page one, or they're just, you know, trying to figure out how they should handle it. These are people with long-range plans and and are growing with the characters, and, and, and there's a certain level of sophistication you could get with an ongoing creative team. So I was talking about that with uh, Todd, and my, my plan was, it's like, if I could keep the creative teams consistent, and I thought, maybe seven years, Mm. You know, we, we might overcome, you know, overtake the X-Men in sales, and instead we wound up doing it in just three years, where, uh, you know, once we were going and sales were, you know, up, uh, actually Spider-Man was beginning to consistently outsell X-Men, and between the Spider-Man titles I was editing and the X-Men titles Bob Harris was editing, we were together responsible 
responsible for 50% of Marvel's comic book sales, and all uh, all the other editors combined were the other 50%. And it was just, you know, before that happened, you know, people would say, Marvel is just the X-Men and everything else. Uh, after we did that, people would say, Marvel is X-Men and Spider-Man and everything else. <laughs> now I think Iron Man's up there, too. Yeah. Avengers, Avengers. Is, yeah, yeah. So things have changed a little. Yeah. But um, speaking of big sellers, you had Spider-Man number one, the McFarlane illustrated and written uh, comic. How did, you know, what was the idea for that? Was that something that you came to tie with, the Tom came to you with? Uh, it, it, it was more organic. Uh, I mean, underlying it all, uh, my thinking was always I like the idea of one Spider-Man title. Uh, and the early Spider-Man by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko and John Romita were really pretty much the model uh, that we were going by and as others have said you know we wanted to evoke that but give it you know a modern sensibility and evolve it somewhat I think Andy Warhol once said uh, the way to do something have a success is take an old successful idea and just try to make it seem new and uh, so but I really thought there was a lot to that it, uh, you know I think you know so much had changed and I didn't think the comics were keeping up with it in that, you know, comic books were primarily starting to be sold in comic book stores. Readers were coming every Wednesday. And I felt, this is kind of crazy. I mean, when I was reading Spider-Man, it was clearly the same characters month after month. And the, when you left off uh, one issue, you couldn't wait to get the next one, and it picked right up. And it, it just made it uh, a complete, cohesive world. Having several titles where they would have footnotes saying, well, this one takes place after that one, or this one takes place before that. I, I just It just made me too aware of that these were comic books, and, and when I took over Spider-Man, it just seemed like it was all over the place, where he had one girlfriend in this book, a different girlfriend in another book. Uh, one book was maybe supposed to, you know, focus on his, uh, you know, work life at the Daily Bugle. Another one is his, uh, his social life, another one, it's, you know, uh, hanging out with other superheroes, and it was like dissecting something, and like, instead of having something that had everything that made it good intact, it was like, well, we'll, we'll put this bit over here, and we'll put this bit over here, and you had to read them all to, to get the whole effect. I just wanted that in every comic, and uh, I don't think they were ready to necessarily do a weekly one title but everything I was doing if you look closely was trying to make that sort of happen one of the first things I did was try to was change all the logos to look like the amazing Spider-Man logo mm. and which uh, the sales department protested loudly saying it'll create confusion <laughs> I said look at Superman you know like uh, that's the most famous logo in the world and, and, and believe it or not DC was so silly at some point. I think they actually figured Marvel must know what they're doing. So they actually, like in some of the other books Superman was in, they, they had different
different logos. And it's like, wh who would ever want to change the Superman logo? Anyway, back at Marvel, back with, uh, you know, this was my view. Uh, so when we were... So the whole concept of having three monthly titles was against everything I believed in. But things happen. And one of the things that happened was, uh, you know, Todd was sort of evolving. You know, he was, you know, like after what happened with him at DC, he was very conscientious about how he was inked. And we had a great inker, this guy Bob McLeod, inking his, his first couple of uh, books. And... Uh, Todd wasn't happy. Uh, not that Bob wasn't doing a good job. He wasn't inking it the way Todd thought it should be inked. Todd wanted, like, hey, can we get uh, Terry Austin, who wasn't available at the time. But what I told him is, look, why don't you ink it yourself? Which he really hadn't done. I mean, he really, uh, it was, you know, in a sense, it was almost like saying, put up or shut up. And he's a tough enough guy that, okay, I'll do it. And, you know, he had to even talk to other artists and inkers and say, well, what pen should I use? Because I went through a similar process earlier back in the X-Men days when I, uh, after X-Men I was working with John Byrne on Fantastic Four where, you know, instead of working with Chris anymore, he decided, I want to write it, I want to ink it, I want to, you know, have as much control as possible. So this was very much like that in that, you know, was the first step was, okay, I'm going to do the inking. And Michelini was doing a great job as a writer. And I think uh, McFarlane was a very professional guy in that he didn't want to use his superstar status and say, I want to write the book myself and kick this guy out. He recognized that, well, you know, David was a freelancer. He was doing a, you know, a job that was professional. The editors and the fans and the sales were good. It was, he wasn't doing anything wrong. It's just not necessarily, again, what Todd wanted to do himself. So I have to back up just a little bit to give you one more piece in this sure, yeah. ever-convoluted, complicated puzzle. <laughs> At one point, Todd had asked a question, and it was a very good question. He looked at some of the books Marvel was publishing at the time, uh, the epic line, and particularly, I think, Akira, which was this uh, manga book Marvel was uh, publishing. And he saw this beautiful computer coloring. He saw, I mean, just the coloring and the paper was just high production values. And he's like, well, let me see if I got it right. These, these poor-selling books Marvel's doing has, like, this incredible production values Yet, Spider-Man and all the other top-selling X-Men included are, are have like the worst printing and the worst color. You know why is that? And you know that's a smart question for someone to ask. I, I didn't really know the answer, so I had to ask around. One of the people I spoke to was Marvel's uh, head of its direct sales department, Carol Kalish, and she explained. Well, for small runs and at a higher price, you know, we could afford that kind of stuff at Epic. But our mainline titles, which the, the whole success of the company rested upon, 
we want to keep as affordable as possible to keep as large an audience as possible. And, and she threw in uh, at the time, now, if you guys want to do another Spider-Man title with that kind of printing and paper and color, let me know. I'd be happy to do it. And at that particular point, that's the last thing I wanted. But back to when Todd was thinking, well, now, and this is really what he thought. I mean, and I'm sure he would have done this. He's like, you know, maybe I'll get a backup feature or I'll, I'll just find some writing work somewhere and some editor might take a chance with me. And uh, I didn't think of it instantly, but at some point I, I remembered what Carol said about another book. And I pitched it to Todd. I said, you know, and the other, one other factor that contributed to this was, as the Spider-Man editor, there was always a lot of requests that we put together uh, trade paperbacks. One of the problems with that on Spider-Man uh, was that the stories were so long and never-ending that it would be very either they'd be incredibly long trade paperbacks or or they would not they would end in the middle of stories. So I was thinking, well, what if we created this other series that maybe we could do six issues, collect it as trade, and they would be more self-contained and sort of apart a from the regular ongoing continuity. You know, not out of continuity, but you know what I'm trying yeah, to say. Of course. So all, all those things came together, and I pitched it to Todd, and I said, why don't we do this? You could write it. You could pencil it. You can ink it. We'll, we'll print it on that good paper you like. We'll get some fancy coloring, et cetera, et cetera. And this was like, well, this is great. You know, I think it took him by surprise. He was expecting to have to you know, do, uh, I don't know, what's, what's a uh, poor-selling uh, Marvel character, you know? Right. <laughs> in the back of some other poor-selling Marvel title. So this this was, you know, a big deal. And uh, he was up for it. And, and for me, it was like an opportunity to do a lot of things I've been thinking about for years and years and how to launch a title, how to be successful with it. I had a lot of fun just asking people, guess what I'm going to call the new Spider-Man title? No one would ever say, Spider-Man? You know, it just hadn't been done before. They just assumed it was like some law that we had to have an adjective. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I think Todd uh, was eager to do it. And, you know, I said, well, my confidence in him in, in regards to writing is that I felt watching... You know, even then, the Marvel style wasn't necessarily uh, what it is today with full scripts and the artists more or less illustrating it. It was, they had a big part in the storytelling. And Todd was someone at this particular time who was sort of uh, going back, and it, it's what we said before about an old idea making it new. Marvel under Shooter for a while was emphasizing very clear storytelling, almost sort of like an early DC style, and in some ways that made a you know sort of a duller you know look. Uh, when Jim was no longer there, artists like Todd, Rob Liefeld, uh, Jim Lee were coming in, and it's almost like they were flexing their artistic muscles and trying to do more dynamic layouts and you know while the editors were still trying to maintain you know clarity of storytelling but I, I think there was a, a, 
something was happening that the fans were were noticing, and uh, and seemed exciting. I mean, even Tom, uh, well, we'll talk about Tom DeFalco was, was critical about some of the changes that were going on. Uh, specifically, he would call it uh, the spaghetti webbing that uh, Todd would use, yeah. which uh, Todd will acknowledge he got from a, uh, I think it was a portfolio of Michael Golden artwork, where he saw how Golden did the webbing, and that appealed to to Todd. Let me say this about Todd. One, of, there's so many great things I could say about him. He is very smart, no matter what anyone says. And but he knows how kids things think, and he knows what they think is cool. And because I think it's how his mind works. You know, like someone who would look at toy figures and, and, and just dismiss it. Well, of course, it doesn't look like the real superheroes. That's just how toys are. He was someone who was always asking, well, why can't it look like a real superhero? Just like, why can't this comic book look like the better comic? So he, he was, his mind was always pushing and trying to make things better. So I had a lot of confidence in him that when I would see, like, there was no scene that we could hand him that would say, Mary Jane's on the phone talking to her aunt, and he'd make that page interesting. He'd make it dramatic. I mean, it, 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 he just knew how to, you know, excite the audience that they were paying attention. So there really was not only an amazing, but the, all three titles, uh, a lot of excitement. I guess, you know, it sort of went off the rails a little bit with the uh, Hobgoblin stuff, and, and it was sort of a, you know, a, you know, a period where I ran all the old inventory, but then we sort of refocused again and started moving in a certain direction with all three titles, and whether it was Sal Buscema or Alex Savick or, or Todd McFarlane, I think there was a, a more of a focus and excitement that people were seeing in the books, and it was it was bringing them in. So it wasn't as if, you know, Spider-Man was just this huge seller all along. The sales were heating up, it was going up, and particularly around McFarlane's version, there was a lot of excitement, there was a lot of controversy about that, in that uh, I think Tom would have at one point probably preferred that I got Todd to draw more like the traditional version of Spider-Man. Instead, I met with Todd and discussed the webbing, discussed everything he was doing, and was convinced that, yes, I think this works, and I'm going to tell the other artists to try to incorporate that into their version. Todd felt guilty and said, well, I don't want you telling the other artists to draw like me. And to clarify, I wasn't, I didn't tell anyone draw in Todd's style. What I was trying to tell him is like, imagine this is a real person, you know, and this is what his costume looks like, and when he shoots the webs, that's what the webs look like. Draw it in your own style, but I want the same guy in all three books. So I think Spider-Man was just getting more and more popular. When Todd wanted to go off and we figured out a way to bring him back, I, I think you know, it was, again, sort of just dumb luck, but it was almost uh, perfect 
marketing and that, hey, everyone likes this guy, and then he sort of yanked away for a little while, and we brought in Eric Larson, which was Todd's suggestion, who was doing a great job maintaining a, a similar kind of style. But then when we came and we announced there was going to be the Spider-Man um, title, it really got a tremendous amount of publicity. Um, I mean, I remember... Now, some of it was dumb luck again. It was like uh, there were some newspaper stories out, and then TV picked up on it, and I was invited to be with Stan on CBS This Morning, which is like, I guess, the third-rated morning show. But at the time, Letterman was on CBS beating... Uh, you know Jay Leno early on, and um, so at, when people still had dials and stuff, you know they would leave Letterman on. Then when he woke up the next day, suddenly there was a war somewhere, and you know some country was invading Kuwait. And on that day, Todd Stan, well not Todd Stan and I were on CBS this morning talking about this new Spider-Man comic, and it really reached out to. <laughs> The general public who were hearing, oh, I could buy Spider-Man number one, and there's a new Spider-Man, and there's some excitement. And so there's a lot of real interest from both fans and, you know, and the audience. And, and on top of that, we actually had limited the sales of, of like, the newsstand version. We were only going to do 250,000 of this. And the other one was sort of unlimited, or, or the direct market version was 250, and the other one was unlimited. But when, you, when I hear now people saying, oh, it was nothing but speculators, sure, I'm sure there were people who were thinking, oh, I'll buy a bunch of them. But I remember in New York, uh, like stores like Forbidden Planet specifically had signs up saying limit two per customer. So we were reaching a lot of people. And I think it was growing before, it wasn't like, oh, we don't care about Spider-Man, and then a number one comes out, and then well, I'll buy that as an investment. I think it was the combination of an artist that people were excited about, the storylines that people were caring about, a character that's, you know, it was just a whole bunch of things at the same time, and I think it created a, a, a huge success. Meanwhile, the... The ex-editors were closely paying attention, and I think they went more in the greed direction of, well, we'll do five different covers, right. and they'll all be unlimited. And, and they'll I, lock together. Yeah, <laughs> I think uh, a lot of those are still, you can still find those in the, sitting on the in boxes. In I, the, I bought a bunch today, because I actually, I, I write a lot about those comics in that generation, so uh, yeah, I understand. <laughs> yeah, so it was a very exciting thing, and, and, and for me, it was sort of the culmination of, of my time at Marvel because that really was uh, a plan that we wanted to bring Spider-Man back to the top and uh, I, I think we did that uh, there, you know, once you've done that there's not much more to do after that I think it gave uh, Todd and the other guys who went off to form image confidence that you know hey wh wh why are we being you know why do we have to put up with being treated poorly when we could just go off create publish our own books right you know if they're if they're marketing it based on us uh, doing it and uh, even myself at that time I, I was like you know I'd been at Marvel for 20 years and decided uh, I think it's you know 
what more can I do here? I didn't really want to be editor-in-chief because for a big company like Marvel, it's more of an administrative uh, job and a lot of boring having to babysit all your editors and creators and deal with the business people. It's just more of a bureaucratic job than I wanted to deal with. So there were opportunities for me elsewhere. So uh, uh, shortly thereafter, I wound up uh, becoming an editor-in-chief and starting a new line of comics for the Topps Company. And and here I am now, <laughs> you know, partners with uh, Terry Nantier and a company called Paper Cuts. And uh, uh, I hope doing uh, comics that a whole new generation of fans are going to be uh, you know talking to me about uh, 20 years from now <laughs> yeah well well b before we let you go I was hoping you could talk a little more about paper cuts what you're doing right now where we can find you things things of that nature we're, we're well almost everywhere but comic book stores although the Smurfs do very well there uh, the idea was uh, really Terry's in that uh, he he had had a, uh, and still has a company called NBM that he started over 35 years ago that really has been in the forefront of publishing European graphic novels, uh, classic comic strip reprints, uh, a lot of material like that. And, it, and it's just, uh, you know, he's just a, an excellent publisher. But uh, I think he had noticed that there was an area that a lot of the other publishers were not paying attention to anymore, and that was basically all ages, and particularly comics for girls. Uh, and we got together and started talking, and uh, we started in 2005. And we've been, uh, it's been since like eight years later, things, sales are better than ever. Our biggest seller right now is called the Lego Ninjago, which uh, if you're a 10 year old boy, that's like uh, what the Beatles were to my generation. It's like, uh, uh, it's just incredible. Uh, each, I think the first volume of that is in its, uh, currently in its 14th printing from us. It's gotten us distribution into places like Walmart and Target. Uh, yeah, we're Barnes and Nobles. Uh, uh, you know, it's probably Toys R Us as well. Online, digitally available. So it's really exciting. We're creating the uh, the, the material for that, and uh, the uh, the writer is uh, Greg Farshti, who uh, works with Lego. So has intimate knowledge of how, you know, how the characters are, and is able to, to capture both the feeling of the humor of the show. And but is also a longtime comics fan, so he, he's really you know the, I, I think these stories are far better than uh, a lot of older readers would suspect they are. And uh, there's one coming out that's uh, uh, actually very much inspired by uh, a Captain America storyline where um, from the '60s, where it was. Um, I think it was uh, the, with the Red Skull and, and the Sleepers, where uh, the Skull. I think Stan and Jack came up with it based on, you know, the the concept of sleeper agents, which was a real world thing that you know, like they would pop up, you know, if the if, if the Nazis lost and they would try to you know create some uh, destruction and badness and and so the Red Skull had these various pieces of a giant robot that would awake 
like and you know if something happened to them and things didn't work out as they hoped and so it would just cause all sorts of destruction so we were in a period in the Ninjago continuity where the uh, where we were between uh, seasons of the animated series and one of the major villains Garmadon had been uh, pretty much not necessarily defeated but you know whatever was originally causing him to be evil was removed and he reverted back to his true you know good self and was able to reunite with his son etc etc and so there's a you know the Ninjago guys are uh, not necessarily accepting you know this guy who was their worst enemy and uh, they accidentally mentioned something like oh we've been fighting you here there and everywhere and it was like a certain code word that triggered this memory oh my god wait a minute you know there's this there's this we have to stop this thing I, I me and the other bad guy had created to in case I lost uh, it would be activated and it'll destroy the whole world so it was like uh, and it is a similar type of you know big robot that looks like Garmadon just like the, the sleepers had like the big skull head on a glider and so I think we put a special thanks to Stanley and Jack Kirby uh, uh, notation on that one uh, but one of the other big titles uh, we've just announced in San Diego that we'll be doing uh, well two big announcements there one is uh, uh, we're going to be publishing WWE uh, graphic novels and comics actually uh, we haven't done comic books in a while other than free comic book day comics but uh, we managed to get Mick Foley who not only was he a three-time WWE champion and has been inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame he actually is a great writer he's written a couple of novels uh, is a best-selling New York Times best-selling uh, novelist author uh, he's written children's books the novels are great the his memoirs are great so I figured uh, and, and he's a comics fan so he understands story he's a, a brilliant guy I mean he was like not just one character he was like Cactus Jack he was mankind uh, so I will, rather than just Joe the comic book writer I wanted someone who really understood wrestling and what makes wrestling work on, in the live events on TV and who can make it work in comics a lot of previous WWE comics I think we're always tempted to try to turn them into superheroes right and what I told Mick is we want this to be wrestling yeah you know let's let's just do things in the comic that they're not necessarily going to be able to get anywhere else but we want to take all the elements that make wrestling great and do that and the final announcement we made in uh, San Diego is that we've been publishing Power Ranger comics and graphic novels but every time I would mention it to people like your ages they'd say Mighty Morphin Power Rangers I'd say no it's the current Super Samurai or the uh, Mega Force Power Rangers and they go oh and totally not interested so we, we talked to Saban and they said oh well go ahead uh, do Mighty Morphin Power Rangers so we'll be doing that and uh, and the reaction online after we announced it was uh, was tremendous and I think the, the team we have is really good and the art's great uh, matter of fact the, the artist uh, Paulo Henrique uh, 
did the first couple of Ninjago books, and it's weird because he's such a superhero guy at heart that Lego characters have their own specific Lego anatomy, yes. and, and he was tempted to sort of stretch their proportions to make them look more human, and the Lego people would have to keep asking us to make corrections where make them look more Lego-like. So when I offered him Power Rangers, he was just, it's as if I handed him a million dollars, and now he could draw, and the one, the Saban people had to tell him that, you know, he was almost getting too carried away, and that, uh, you know, the Power Rangers don't look like the, you know, image, you know, skin-tight costumes, every vein bulging, you know, they're in their uniforms, and you can tell who they are, but, so I think he, he's adjusted, and, and he's and he's doing some of the best work I've ever seen. Uh, I mean, even the other uh, ones, Megaforce and uh, Super Samurai, I think are great, but I think when you see what he's doing on uh, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, uh, you'll, you'll be impressed. We're not going to be doing dark and gritty Mighty Morphin Power One of the reasons Saban chose us and not Marvel or DC is uh, they saw that we were doing stuff for all ages, and that still is their primary audience. They're not really interested in, uh, you know, getting a 30-year-olds, you know, interested. They they want well, they want kids, and we say all ages. And even though most people hear that as just kids, we want it to be all ages. We want it to to appeal to kids, but we want uh, we'll take the 30-year-olds as well. Very good. Well, well, Jim, thank you so much for joining us here on Superior Inspired Talk. We really appreciate it. You have a real breadth of knowledge here about the industry, and and again, I, I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> So, thanks again to Jim Salakrup for taking the time to speak with us. And please, be on the lookout for our other four Superior Aspire Talk and Friends episodes. That's J.M. Demetrius, Mark Bagley, the legendary Tom DeFalco, and Danny Figueroff that have all been released at our iTunes store. Um, and, you know, for all you new listeners out there, and I, I hope we were able to get a few of you as we've done these, these in Friends podcasts, uh, send us some feedback. Let us know what's going on. Let us know what you'd like to see us do in the future. Uh, we really hope that you come around and check out our regular episodes of reviews. Right, Dan? Yeah, and we have more uh, interviews coming up soon with a couple other famous Spider-Man uh, members of the Spider-Man team uh, when I go to Baltimore Comic-Con. So, you know, hang around and, and wait for those. I know I'm going to be interviewing Ron Friends, and I'm going to try to get uh, Sal Buscema as well. Yeah, those those two would be fantastic. And it turns out that the legendary Tom DeFalco is going to be there, too. So maybe we could always uh, get him for a second go-around so he could uh, threaten to kill one of us again. No, he didn't threaten to kill us. Tom is fantastic. <laughs> you could see it in his eyes. <laughs> I was saying, I just, I just got the vibe that he wanted to kill us. So there was no threats. We, 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 you know, we, we, we want to avoid all lawsuits from the Tom DeFalco estate. <laughs> <laughs> The legendary Tom DeFalco estate. Yes, he's got legendary lawyers, I hear. You <laughs> um, didn't go to four years of legendary school not to be called legendary. <laughs> <laughs>
Exactly. So before before we dig ourselves into any more legendary holes, Dan, why don't you tell us where we could find your stuff? Well, you can find my stuff by following me on Twitter at, at Dan Gavazdan or going to my movie review website, uh, grindmyreels.com, where you can find all the grind on all the movies that are hot right now, if, if you so, so desire to do so. Yeah, uh, so, <laughs> so, Mark, <laughs> tell us more about yourself here, buddy. I don't know. I, I, I think I want to talk some more about how you grind movies up. I, 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 I just saw Pitch Perfect on, on DVD the other day. Did you grind that movie? I ground it to a pulp. Okay, very good. Well, as for me, you can find me at www.chasingamazingblog.com or you can follow me on Twitter at ChasingASMblog. You can like me on Facebook at facebook.com slash chasingamazing. Uh, it's worth noting I actually recently gave away a free Avengers code uh, for getting my 300th like. So maybe if we keep upping those likes, we'll give out a few more codes. Um, and, of course, there is Comic Should Be Good, Gimmick or Good. That's my look at 90s chromium-encrusted comic books. You can find all of our Superior Spider Talk podcasts at superiorspidertalk.podomatic.com or find us on iTunes by searching Superior Spider Talk. And if you do... Please leave us a rating and a comment and let us know how we're doing, and we'll read it on the air. If you have any opinions on these comics or any questions, email them to us at superiorspiretalk at gmail.com, and we'll address and read them on the air. And Dan, since you got me to read Ultimate Spider-Man recently, I'm going to quote our ponytailed Uncle Ben, because I think he's the only Uncle Ben that actually ever said this, which is, with great podcasts comes Superior Spider-Talk. Superior Spider-Talk.